Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. Have we got an amazing program lined up for you today? I've been thinking about this for days. I was talking to my family about it this morning. It's something I want my kids to listen to. Uh, this is a show that has the ability to impact every single one of us. If you have a family, listen up. If you have sons, especially, pay attention. Or if you would like to create a son someday and, and find a grown son, somebody else's, uh, to partner with in life so you can create a family of your own. If you have a relationship that's on the rocks, all of it, there's help. Workplace issues, that factors into the discussion we're about to have. The co-parenting drama. Uh, that a lot of people find themselves in, including one of the biggest celebrities in the world, Britney Spears. There's news about that today. All of this factors in as we speak today to Dr. Warren Farrell. He is the author of The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. He is also someone that you have been requesting in large numbers, and he has graciously offered to take some of your questions later in this show. His many, many books have been published in more than 50 countries and in 19 languages. Dr. Warren Farrell, welcome to the program. So great to have you here. I'm looking so forward to talking with you. I've admired you for many years. Oh, thank you very much. It was great to read up on some of your accolades. Um, The Financial Times of London has named you one of the world's top 100 thought leaders. Think about that. Top 100 thought leaders. That's not an easy uh, honor to receive. And I respect that. And I respect the area in which you've you've been working. I mean, I've said a lot that on issues like the Me Too problems, the you know, what happens on college campuses with women and men, uh, equal pay arguments and so on. I believe the solution to this problem ultimately ultimately lies in parents who have both boys and girls. You know, right? Because we love them both equally. We, we don't want our daughters to get sexually harassed or assaulted, but we don't want our boys to get unfairly accused of these things. We want our daughters to get equal pay, but we don't want it to come at the expense of boys who have done nothing wrong or based on a lie about boys out earning girls that doesn't take into account life choices, right? Like when I talk to my other moms and dads of boy and girl parents, they make the most sense to me on these issues. So how did you get so smart on all of this? Are you a are you a dad of a boy and a girl? And what brought you to this line of thinking to where you are recognized as one of the top 100 thought leaders in the world? Well, as you probably know, my background started with the National Organization for Women in New York City. So I was deeply involved with the women's movement. I spoke all over the world on behalf of women's issues. And then um, as I was speaking, um, I remember once in particular at, at a, um, in Japan, a teacher came up to me afterwards and said, you know, Dr. Farrell, I, I want to tell you, the boys in our class are actually having more problem than the girls. I know you're speaking on behalf of women and, and supporting women's issues, but have you ever thought about the issues that boys are going through? And so that put that on my radar maybe 40 years ago. And then as I started hearing the same type of message in other countries, I began to pay more attention to what was happening with boys. And then I saw that boys in all 63 of the largest developed nations were falling behind girls on every academic subject, but especially in reading and writing that turned out to be the biggest predictors of success or failure. 
And so I started looking more carefully at that and saw that boys' sperm counts were, male sperm counts were going down, which obviously means that fertility is being affected and the health of the future generations being affected. I saw that male IQs were going down, that male um, males were having uh, shorter life expectancies when in the past life expectancies have, had always gone up from year to year, no less gener generation to generation. And so something was happening on so many levels that boys were much more likely to drop out of high school. And boys who drop out of high school are far more likely to um, be unemployed in their 20s, more than 20% likely to be unemployed in their 20s. And of course, girls are not interested in unemployed you know, boys who are often living in their parents' basements you know, or, or, or on unemployment lines. As girls, girls, women don't look for future husbands on unemployment lines or in no. parents' basements. And so- <laughs> Not exactly. This is affecting, as you so wisely pointed out, you know, when this is, we're all in the same family boat and when only one sex wins, both sexes lose. And I think that's been a big, we've overlooked that in the, in the focus on, on just women's issues because every woman's issue is a men's issue and every men's issue is a woman's issue. It's so ex exactly right. So even the parents who only have daughters need to pay very close attention to this because what do you want your daughter to wind up with? A, a strong, well-adjusted, equal partner man. And how are we going to keep producing those if our messaging to kids is girls rule, boys drool? You know, the future is female. All of that is a bunch of bull and it's very harmful messaging. I'm sure it's intended to lift up little girls, but this is not 1950. This is mm -hmm. 2022. And it's very demoralizing the messages we've settled on right now to young boys. Yes, you know, from boys see messages and people wearing T-shirts saying boys are stupid, throw rocks at them, or even something a little gentler, but an also very malicious in a way too, is the future is female, is wonderful message to women saying, you know, the future, you, you are very much a part of the future. But if boys are hearing that combined with toxic masculinity and combined with we live in a patriarchy in which men made the rules to benefit men at the expense of women, all of those things together take the you know the junior high school boy um, who's trying to get up enough um, you know sense of himself as having being an important person in the future. That's that's not encouraging for the for that insecure boy. So how did it start? How do we go from the place where I mentioned the 1950s? You know that was a place in time where gender roles were pretty well defined. There weren't a lot of women in the workforce in any you know, really powerful or well-earning roles. Mm -hmm. And um, then things got turned around in some, in some ways for the good and in some ways for the bad. But when did the crisis with our boys begin in earnest? Well, it really began probably in the 60s when, when there was more and more of an increase in focus on, on women's issues. And we were sort of doing a zero sum game. We were saying yes. that, you know, that boys were part of the problem. Boys were the oppressors. And this came out of, you know, the, um, the we in the women's movement. I say we in the women's movement because I was very much a part of the women's movement, movement at that time. And we'd come through, you know, the civil rights movement and in which there was an oppressor and an oppressed group. And the, uh, many of the early feminists were Marxist in their tendencies and they were in Marxism. It was sort of like there's an oppressor and an oppressed. 
And that hierarchical assumption that somebody has to be on top and somebody's on the bottom, we took that into women's issues and 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 said that you know women were the oppressed and men were the oppressors. And that left, and then we said masculinity is toxic and that toxicity comes from male privilege. Well, it is true that there's a lot of parts of masculinity that are toxic, just like there are a lot of parts of femininity that are toxic. Uh, but the toxicity of masculinity does not come from male privilege. It comes from the, the price that men paid by having to cut off from their feelings in order to be disposable in war and be willing to be the ones to go out and be killed. And, and each generation had its war. And we, were, we told men you were needed and you needed to be drafted and you need to register for the draft. Even today, you need to register for the draft if you're a male, but not a female. And so males learn that if you're going to if you're going to serve that purpose of being worth worthwhile, you're going to either be willing to risk disposability in war or disposability in the workplace in the most hazardous jobs, for example. And this, but in order to be dis willing to be disposable and think of yourself as a hero um, by possibly giving up your life, you had to disconnect from your feelings of hurt and pa of pain, of, of sensitivity. And that created a set of problems of not being able to say what's going on inside of you. And so there were lots of male toxicities, but they didn't emanate from male privilege. They emanated from the price that men paid in order to feel like they would be able to get loved. They noted men noticed that women fell in love uh, with, you know, not the uh, not not the um, private and the pacifist, um, but the you know, the the soldier um, and the person that was was quite the opposite of the private and the pacifist, if you will, the officer and the gentleman. Mm. Oh, that's so interesting. One of the things you said reminded me of um, it's a Dr. Phil line, but I I loved it, and it it goes as follows: How can you win when the person you love most is losing? you know, fights between women and men, uh, the search for women to get ahead in the workplace and sort of equal out their position in America at writ large. How can we win when the guys we want to love and do love are losing? It's not a zero sum game. It can't it can't be zero sum. As you know, I do couples communication workshops. And one of the things I ask every couple to do and you know, understand in the couples workshops, some people are there just to enhance their marriage or relationship and others are on the verge of divorce or have already filed for divorce. So it's a, a large group of diff different group of people. And one of the questions I ask is to write down uh, something, the answer to a question that your partner will never see. Um, and I make sure that that happens, uh, that they don't see it. And, um, and the question is, if, you're, if your partner was to be on the verge of dying and you knew with 100% certainty your partner was gonna die. Um, and yet you could, um, you, you knew that with 100% certainty that you could save your partner's life. However, you'd take a 50% chance of risking or losing your own life in the process. Would you do it or not? Yes, no, uncertain. 90 some odd percent of the men, usually about 95% of the men even though some of them are get, thinking about a divorce, um, say that they would risk their lives at the 50% level to save their partner's lives. About 85% of the women say the same thing about the men. And in, among gay couples, it's pretty much the same um, ratio. And yet, so, I, so my first step in, in mindsets that I ask people to do in order to, before they lis listen to their partner's criticism, is to say, if I'm willing to die 
to give my partner life. Maybe I could listen to give my partner life. Mm. And that's one of six meditations I ask people to go for, be, to uh, go to, um, to do before they hear their partner's criticism of them, realizing that when you provide a safe environment for your partner's concern or criticism, you're giving them life and you're also doing what I call a love guarantee. You're guaranteeing that your partner will feel safe when she or he says whatever they want to say in whatever way they want to say it, exaggerating, not telling the same story that you would tell. And when they feel completely heard, they feel safe by you, therefore they feel more loved by you, and therefore they feel more love for you. And it's exactly what you were saying a minute ago, these, that you know, when we love somebody so much, what is there about us that can't hear their complaint? And what there is about us that can't hear their complaints or their criticism is that historically and biologically, when there was a complaint or a criticism about us, it was a potential enemy. And so biologically, we were prepared to become defensive when we heard an enemy criticize us mm. um, because defenses were our way of surviving. However, they're the while they're helpful for survival in the past, they're not helpful for love in the future. How big, and I want to get into more of the couple stuff later, for sure, I find it all fascinating, but how big a role has men's presence outside the home as the typically the historical uh, primary wage earner played in this I don't even know what toxic masculinity is exactly. You know, I, I can think of one example of it in my life. I mean, I'm, uh, there have been more, but I'll give you one example that I know was a toxic masculine moment. Beyond that, I don't really understand it. Um, I was a young lawyer. I was in my 20s. I bumped into a guy from college. I went to Syracuse University. And uh, he was like, oh, you're a lawyer? I'm like, yeah, I'm a lawyer. He's like, oh, good for you. He's like, I, I never... I never expected you to wind up, you know, doing something like that. I'm like, oh, well, thanks. Yeah, it's working out fine. He's like, what firm are you with? And I happen to be with one of the best firms in the country. So there's no way around acknowledging, you know, it was a great firm. And he's like, oh, good for you. It's nice. Go make me a sandwich. And he walked away. So he's a jerk, wow. right? The guy's, the guy's a jerk. And I would definitely say that's toxically masculine, I guess, under the, sort of the loose term, that the way it's used today, where you're just sort of like a douchey guy putting down a woman. Um, in a way that seems based on gender or sex roles and so on. Anyway, I don't really understand the term, but I do wonder to your point about years of going to war and years of being the one to have to sacrifice and risk physically, sort of the, the other piece of that is years of having to be the one out of the house and not really around the children as much and not, you know, having the responsibility of being the nurturer at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think a lot. A lot of I think a lot of men do do things that you know even they would look back on and say were were not appropriate or not you know not 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 conducive. And one of the things that I used to do is a couple. I used to do um, role reversal dates and men's beauty contests. And so I would say every woman is in a, in a beauty contest every day of her life. And so um, I'll if men here in the audience would like to understand what women go through as being part of that beauty contest in everyday life. I'll ask every single man in the audience to come up on the stage and in the aisles and to be part of that beauty contest of everyday life uh, that women go through. And so I would then have all the women be the judges. And so the uh, women would ask, um, so, so, the, so the guys at the end of the process, um, there would be six finalists and then finally a, a winner. 
And the, the guy who was the winner would almost always say some version of, this is interesting. I'm so proud of being a winner. And for the last you know hour, I competed fiercely to, to get this accolade of being a winner. And yet the questions that have been asked of me are making me feel like they're, they're not tapping into my values, my intelligence, my thoughtfulness, my caring. They're just, you know, they're just, I'm being looked at as a body. And, um, and I, that feels really um, bad to me, even though I've competed to be part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when the women heard that, they'd go, yes, thank you. Um, and I'd say, but remember, this is a role reversal experience. So I'm going to ask now the women uh, to experience what men go through. And so first of all, I'd ask the women to sit in seats and rows according to how much money they predicted that they would be making in the future. Then I'd okay. ask the guys to focus on um, the women who earned the most money so that their children would have the most options in the best schools, the best neighborhoods, and so on. And to not just put their eyes on the women in the back rows who are on average more attractive, interestingly. And so the the, the guys um, tried to, you know, I really had to work hard to get the guys to do that. And finally, um, I'd ask the women to sort of focus on the, the body that you'd most be interested in, to really tune into the guys' bodies. But of course, because the men had been through that men's beauty contest, uh, they all had an, an hour of training to tune into the guys' bodies. And so then the women came up and they tried to compete for the man that was, was most attractive uh, to them. And oftentimes the most attractive men, the finalists in the beauty contest had seven, eight, nine women uh, that were competing to be their date for the evening. And so um, at the end of that process, I'd ask the women to talk about their experiences and they'd say, this is amazing. Whenever I've used the word in the past, used the word jerk, I would use it for a man. But today I came up and I was wanting to ask Bill or whatever out and there were seven other women competing with me. So I started saying, you know, Bill, you're gonna really love going out in my Porsche and I'm gonna take you to this restaurant, which I've never been to, but I heard it was the best restaurant in town. I can't afford it, but I was exaggerating what I had. I don't have a Porsche. I was exaggerating where I would take him to, which I couldn't afford. And then when when I had it narrowed down to two or three women and I still wasn't winning, I took the guy by the arm and pulled him away uh, with me. Uh, so I uh, and and did something that if a guy did that to me, I would consider that sexual harassment or some version of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did it to him. I was like such a jerk. Um, and now I'm getting to I'm getting the the cue that you know that that being that toxic male, being that jerk, was oftentimes uh, what I did to compensate for my insecurity to be able to not get rejected. And the guys would go, "Oh, thank you. That is what so frequently being a jerk is about." Um, doing something that is tr- I'm trying to do to minimize rejection. But in the process of doing it, I oftentimes increase my possibility of being rejected. Yes, yes. Oh, gosh, it reminds me of another another incident back in my young same time frame um, when, you know, I was the dating version of myself and uh, I was new in Washington, D.C. And I went out to a bar and there was a guy who worked on Capitol Hill who thought I knew who he was because he was some, you know, fourth aide to some 400th congressman. I'm like, I never even heard of your congressman. Never mind you. And um this guy got, starts going on thinking it's going to make him sound studly about how he's going to marry his first wife and he's going to have all of his children with his first wife who's he's got to be hot because he's got to have good looking children. And then once she gets fat, 
and old, he's going to dump her and he's going to make sure he has this, a trophy wife for the second wife because he never wants to be with somebody fat and wrinkly and older. And I was getting so pissed off listening to this guy. I remember saying to him, I'm like, well, you better hope that your wallet fattens at the same rate that your hairline recedes. Otherwise, you're not going to command that. <laughs> <laughs> that's and, but, and, the, and the, the greatly that's fascinating and sad, deeply sad. Um, and I don't know how any man would ever think that that would work. <laughs> like, oh, sure. Let me be number one. I look forward to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We'd like to go out with me and be, be the, 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 the woman I have children with and dump. Um, and, you know, and <laughs> the, ironic, the ironic thing is that once men fall in love with women, um, it is there, the depression the sadness that they go through, the withdrawal, the um, office, often suicidal tendencies that they they feel, ideations that they have, are enormous. Um, when women and men break up, um, it is more likely the woman, the man who will be um, deeply depressed as a result of that, because really? very fre- very frequently the man has all it doesn't feel comfortable talking about feelings to anybody but his wife. And his fears to anybody but his wife, and so everything that he that he uh, when he talks to other men about a problem that he might have with his wife, men will usually give him about two or three minutes worth of time, and then switch the topic to you know what do you think of the game last night or what some something like that, and not pay really attention to him. Uh, whereas when women talk to women about problems they're having with guys, the women are much more likely to say, oh, yeah, I observed that with your husband or your boyfriend. And yeah, I had the same problem with my boyfriend. And by the time the woman is done, she's feeling supported and heard and, and understood by her women friends. Guys don't do that for men friends. And so all of men's eggs of intimacy are in the basket of their wives or women friends. And when they break up, uh, they often go through very deep depression um, much more frequently than than the female does. Mm. So guys have been put in this very tough position where we want them to risk their lives to protect us. I mean, they were the hunter gatherers. They were out there supposed to be dealing with the, you know, woolly mammoth, (laughs) whatever (laughs) at the time. And then we make them you have to go out into the workplace and deal with that rat race and earn the paycheck. And then we kind of turned everything on its head and said, now this version of you is unacceptable. Now, all the things that have happened to you from thousands of years of evolution are, as of today, unacceptable. They all must be unlearned. And at the same time, they're looking at women saying. STEM educate, <laughs> go to the sciences, go to the math, go out there and be the primary wage earner. And a lot of women were like, oh, OK, I'll do it. I'll do it. And then only learned later. Well, uh, I'm not sure how much I love a lot of them learn. I'm not sure how much I love this role either. Right. Both of us have been placed in, in these new uh, configurations that may or may not align with what we truly want. Yes. And that's the real key for some women and some men they really do in align i was always i i always had an interest in being the provider protector but i also had a very strong nurturer connector part of me and i was always torn between those two you know parts of myself and that's me um but other men were you know very comfortable they 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 really wanted to go to you know to be a soldier but the question that i will ask of of a boy a young man who wants to be a soldier or go into the military is are you doing it because Uncle Joe's picture was on the on the mantle and he served as a Marine in World War II and you were, he was always spoken of as a, as a hero? That is, are you following a social bribe to be approved of and recognized and acknowledged? 
or are you doing it because it's something deep inside of you that you feel will that you you feel will be energized by the discipline and, and energized by serving so look deeply inside of yourself and find out uh, you know what you uh, what who you really are and that's the function of two good parents um, who are who are who are doing two things usually with children uh, when women alone are parents, they're usually very good at identifying the chi the children's um, gifts. Uh, you're a wonderful singer. You really play that guitar well. You're a good basketball player, and um, and and then encouraging the boy or the girl to sort of pursue those gifts. And oftentimes, the girl or boy uh, does do that. Um, dads tend to play a role of saying, um, "Yes, if you want to do that, that's great." Um, but that's going to mean if you want to be a, the, you know, one of the gymnasts in the Olympics, uh, that's going to take you making sacrifices. You're not going to be able to go to as many parties. You're not going to be able to play as many video games. You're not going to be able to, um, to you know, to just goof off and hang out um, with, with people um, and talk with them on the phone for hours. You're going to have to make sacrifices. And if I'm going to make the sacrifice to take you to, to give you a tutor, uh, to take you to, um, to, your, to your practices, um, I want some sacrifice from you. I don't want you to try to have it both ways. And dads are more likely to say, if you don't do that, I'll stop giving you the things you, you need to to have your dream. When the children have that boundary enforcement, they're oftentimes they oftentimes learn that if they do want to pursue a, a dream like being an Olympic gymnast, it's going to take sacrifices. And if I don't make those sacrifices, I'm not going to get my parental support. But if I do, I will. Or if I decide we do, I don't want to pursue that dream, I want to have a more balanced life than being an Olympic gymnast or whatever, um, then, uh, then my parents will support that. But they're not going to support me to do something that I say I want to do, but I only half-heartedly do because that will not get me there. And so it's that combination of nurturing, protecting that moms so frequently do traditionally, and sometimes these are reversed, of course. And conversely, that dads often say uh, they're much more likely to do the boundary enforcement and be tough on the kids and say, you know, if you want this, I'll participate, I'll give to you, but only if you do your part in the game. Sometimes that feels to a mom like the dad is being too tough. That you know the child starts crying because they can't go to their best friend's birthday party, um, and the dad understands that that's a real sacrifice that that kid makes, um, but says that that's the way you get that goal. But if you want the goal of a balanced life and good emotional skills and having um, you know having people to having all the learning experiences that come with playing with other people, uh, then that's okay too. But it's a different experience in life. Yeah, and you're not so, going to the Olympics as a teenager then. The, exactly. the the point of the story is supportive of the notion that we need dads. We need, we need dad we need moms and dads in the family and more and more in American society, we're, we don't have the dads. We, we have an absentee dad problem that is pretty massive and it's cross-cultural, it's cross-racial. I mean, obviously there's been some attention paid to what's happening in the, in the black uh, communities, given what we see in terms of crime rates in inner cities and absentee fathers, but it's not just a black family problem. And you, I know you've pointed out that um, is it the second highest, like the second highest version of an American family has a single mom living with her child or children? That's that's the second most common family you'll see in America. Yes, it's uh, 40 percent 
of children live um, with only um, their, their mom, only one parent and almost always the mom. And you, you, so you, you mentioned a couple of things about history here, which is very important. Uh, Moynihan was the first person to see this, Senator um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was a U.S. Senator, Department of Labor uh, Secretary under Johnson and Nixon, and um, so one of the most respected people in the country. And he did something that is commonly called the Moynihan Report. And this is 1965, mind you. So in 1965, he uh, was assigned to find out why there's so much crime in inner cities. And there's a lot of fear. Oh my goodness, this is going to be a racist report that's going to show that you know the blacks commit most of the crimes, and um, everyone was sort of like putting their heads behind their um, yeah, their their hands and uh, wondering what was going to come out. And what he found out was that it something very different, which is the children committing crimes in the inner cities were children who had minimal or no father involvement, what I came to call dad-deprived children. Now they were mostly in black families. 25% of black families at that point in 1965 were being raised with uh, only a mom and almost no dad. At that point in time, it was less than 1%, three, three tenths of 1% of um, um, Caucasian families were, be, were um, raised in that situation. Today, it is 32% of Caucasian families have children raised by only one parent, almost always the mom, and 70 two or 3% yeah. of the black families have children being raised by only the mom. And so today, Caucasian children are in the same situation, even worse than black families were in 1965. And we see that when a child is raised without a dad for each 1% increase in children being raised without a dad, there's a 3% increase in crime um, uh, happening in that in that area where that is um, uh, prone, mm. and so I really began. And Jerome Powell pointed this out. Uh, um, in uh, the you know, the Fed chair uh, said that you know looking around the world, he saw that you know where there were problems, but particularly in the United States, uh, they were problems of children that did not have their fathers and their problems of boys, and we were not doing and the, and boys were were not being. Um, educated um, to um, have technology, to have both parents. And so this was part of what I was discovering as I did the research for, for the boy crisis. When I submitted the boy crisis to my publisher, I initially outlined 10 different area causes of the boy crisis. And then I started studying each of those 10 causes. And I wrote my publisher and said, I'm sorry, but I'm finding that largely the boy crisis resides where dads do not reside. And he said, well, then elaborate on that. And so I began to look at that in greater depth and found out that the children who had minimal or no father involvement or what I call, came to call dad deprived, those children did worse in 70 plus different metrics from, but the boys did cons much more intensely worse than the girls. So the boys and girls, for example, were more likely to commit suicide when they didn't have dads. But boys at the age of nine, um, they commit suicide about equally to girls and very minimally. But between the ages of 10 and 14, boys' suicide rate became twice that of girls. Between the ages of 15 and 19, four times that of girls. Between the ages of 20 and 25, uh, five times that of girls. And the single biggest predictor of suicide in either boys or girls was lack of presence of dads. 
And so oh that God. got me into looking at, well, you know, I, I knew my dad was important, but I didn't have any clue that he was that important. And I started to, you know, to examine exactly, um, you know, what there was about fathering that was so different from what mother, mother style parenting was and why children who did the best have what I call checks and balance parenting, where the father respects the mother's style, the mother respects the father's style, and they communicate about how to make win-win situations out of putting both of their styles together. Mm. All right. So now this has you worried because you lost your spouse and your, your children don't have a living father or because you got a divorce and he turned out to be a deadbeat and left or because you're in a lesbian couple and you you have children all those things uh dr farrell has taken a look at and has thoughts on and i'll pick it up right there after a very quick break so now that we've scared the you know what out of uh parents who are in fatherless homes right either they've gotten a divorce or the dad's taken off or maybe you're a mom who's made the dad not have contact you know bitter the guy, you didn't like him, you kept him out, you got a good child arrangement, you know, child custody arrangement, uh, thinking that was best. Or even just like two of my closest friends are in a lesbian couple. They say they're bi, but they're in a lesbian marriage. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> for the record, they there's no dad around and they just had a boy. They have three girls. They just had a boy, but they have a good plan for male role models in their children's lives, including their boy. But what is the answer to to those situations? A lot of lot of levels. First, the first level, um, m many dads do become deadbeats or withdraw um, after they when they feel like they're only wanted for their wallet and they're only wanted for their money. And so, um, if if you're a mom and you really want to have the dad back in your life, but he seems to not take much interest, or he's getting involved with another woman and their children. Um, and he feels more needed by that other family than he does by by uh, you and your children. One of the first way, the first thing you can do is to um, study the differences between dad style parenting and mom style parenting, and and point and tell him that you value his roughhousing. But now you understand why roughhousing leads to empathy the exact opposite of what you think roughhousing leads to. And I'll, I'll explain why if we talk about that in a little while. Why teasing has cer certain benefits. Why taking certain risks up to a certain point um, teach increases children's IQ, increase increases children's ability to, to assess risks. In other words, <coughs> excuse me, find out wh what dads tend to do that leads children to do so much better with dads. Let your the, the man that has dropped out of your children's life, uh, let him know that you now understand why he is needed and you want to support that as long as he's also listening to you and your, your input. Um, and so that's the number one way to get the most important person in your children's life, aside from you, back into your children's life, which is um, the, the biological dad. The stepfather um, is can be a very important substitute role model, but is almost never as important as the biological dad and the biological mom, because 
the, eventually the children look in the mirror and they see uh, whatever they hear about the biological father or mother, they worry or think that that might be them in the future. They see the parents, both parents, body language, eyes, you know, eye color, um, hair, whatever. And they know that whatever you say about the other parent is also that's being said about them. And so, and both parents are, both ch children are looking always for the, the input of both parents because it's also part of who they are. And so um, it's, so that's, that's the number one way. But if there's, if the, you know, the dad has died or he's in prison for too long to, to, to come out um, to be with the children or for some other reason truly is a deadbeat um, and won't come back under even those circumstances, then um, there's a lot of things you can do. One is if you're at all faith-based oriented, get your child involved in a faith-based community in which the minister, priest, uh, rabbi, or imam is um, forms groups of boys your son's age and make sure that they're in confidential groups where they talk about their feelings or their fears so that almost all boys growing up as girl and girls as well uh, feel like they have special insecurities, but boys in particular have almost no permission to talk about those insecurities. And when every boy in a confidential group of your son's age is talking about his insecurities, it makes each boy in the group realize that they're, those, they're, those insecurities are not just them, they're everyone's insecurities. And that makes them feel a lot more internally secure. That's one example. Another is get your children involved in the liberal arts of sports. When I say the liberal arts of sports, what I mean is get them involved in team sports where they learn how to, to get good advice from a, a coach and how to work together with other people to win. Get them involved in one of the most neglected forms of sports um, in recent history, which is pickup team sports. Pickup team sports is wonderful preparation to be an entrepreneur because you're creating something from nothing. You're creating your own, um, say, on a basketball court, you're saying, do I play half court or full court? Um, do I pass to this person or do I pass or not pass to that person? Because this, every time that person asks me to pass to him, he just wants to hog the ball for himself. So you're learning all those skills as to how to put a team together, how to work, how to select and unselect from, from various people that you work with. And then also individual sports like tennis or gymnastics where th there's a team, but the primary focus is on your developing your own discipline and your own skill sets. And if you're a mom and you uh, go out to the games, especially the organized sports games um, and make contact with the, the coach, the, um, particularly if it's a male coach and explain to the male coach that the boy doesn't have the biological father around, and if he, if he, the coach, can take your son aside occasionally and point out valid things that your son is doing well to yeah. make your, help your son feel special and also things that your son is not doing as well as he could be doing to make your son um, have an inspiration to do those things better, uh, that's a helpful role model to bring into your, into your son's life. Mm. Um, you know, third, Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts. Cubs, almost every parent I know, cares that their children have idea have character, good character more than almost anything else. And Cub Scouts, if your child attends Cub Scouts, your son attends Cub Scouts for two years or more consistently, uh, studies show that those children develop much more positive char um, personality characteristics that, that of integrity, of loyalty, of, um, oh. of, um, um, of on honesty uh, than they do without the Cub Scouts. 
Boy Scouts have are one of the most amazing um, constructs of masculinity. But, you know, boys do m very much better when they have incentives and when they get little badges to say I did it <laughs> and um, mm -hmm. and then but the the badges the the merit badges and, and Boy Scouts not only are merit badges for that particular activity but they usually put your son in contact with a male mentor who is good at that activity and so you're 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 giving your son male mentor after male mentor and a concrete um, goal of being able to um, say I, I did this activity well, and um, and then and then possible bigger goals like becoming an Eagle Scout or a Star Scout um, to um, to to say that I have you know put together not just one specialty but multiple specialties, mm -hmm. and in the process your son is is able to to discover you know what am I good at what do I like and um, and what what's the combination of what I'm, I like and good at. I was blessed to be good at math, but I didn't like math. And so I got into something that wasn't math oriented. Well, this is so fascinating. And it's so heartening to know there are avenues where you can create a male role model types in your son's life, even if you're in the unfortunate position of not having a, you know, a biological dad in the house or you've just chosen not to. Um, one thing you said reminded me of a story that's in the news this week, and we have the video the importance of sports and the lessons that are learned out on the sports field. This made national news. It was a little league game happened on Tuesday between a team from Pearland, Texas and a team from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now here's what you're going to see in one second. The Texas East pitcher is named Caden Shelton and Caden had a pitch get away from him and it struck Tulsa's Isaiah Jarvis in the head. Isaiah falls to the ground, fortunately hit his helmet. So he was okay. And then the pitcher, the pitcher, Caden, got very upset that he had hurt, you know, inadvertently, this other kid, this batter, and he started crying on the mound. And here you see the kid from Tulsa who got hit walk over to the pitcher's mound. He's, he hugs the pitcher. Oh, my God. It's like I want to cry. He's hugging him, making the pitcher feel better. And he says, hey, you're doing just great. You're doing great. And the, the coach comes out, the other boys come out, I'm like getting misty eyed just looking at this example um, of how amazing it was. And the Texas East, the pitchers team, wound up winning the game nine to four. They've qualified for the Little League World Series. Um, and the boy who threw the pitch later gave, gave an interview saying he could hardly breathe out there. He was so upset about hurting the batter. And uh, when the little kid told him, look, you got this, you got this, just take deep breaths, he was saying to him. And just think happy thoughts. I think, my God, what every parent would want, right, for to for their kids to experience on the on the ball field. And if I were the parent of the little boy who did the hugging, <laughs> the one Isaiah Jarvis, I'd be like, I'm not doing a college application essay. I'm just going to submit this videotape <laughs> so you know what kind of a person I am. <laughs> I so agree with you. I am I am misty eyed watching that also. That was just absolutely the type of um the type of character development we all want for our children. And one of the nice things about sports is that especially um pickup team sports and where you're changing 
you know, the sports every day. I can remember when I, I was playing um, baseball and, you know, somebody would slide into first base and somebody would say, you know, the second baseman would say, you're out. And then and the person sliding in said, I'm safe. You dummy, blah, blah, blah. And they're back and forth at each other. Well, the next day we'd be on the same team together and, um, you know, mm-hmm. and calling somebody else, um, you know, the dummy. And so, you know, we, we began to learn um, unconsciously that where you stand depends on where you sit. And that, you know, that, 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 you know, mocking each other or, you know, calling each other names, uh, that those were things that weren't um, fundamentally um, name calling that really we meant. They were just the, 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 um, uh, the, the moment of excitement and, um, and anger. And then we, we knew, though, uh, that the, the people that we were yelling at uh, the next day, we might be on their same team and just yelling differently about the same type of um, mm-hmm. outer safeness. Mm-hmm. My gosh, there's so much to learn from the sports teams. And uh, and like you say, just the pickup game. You know, my kids are down there right now playing Foursquare. I, I got, this isn't something we arranged. They just went to play Foursquare. There's so many. And then they come home, they realize, and I saw my little guy when he turned nine, they were playing a game of Foursquare. And I saw all these other kids make sure, I guess they're you're like king. You can be, I don't know how it works, but you can be ace, you can be queen, you can be joker, whatever. And if you're king, it's good. And these kids, while they're a lot of them were older, the last round, they they made sure my little guy, who was the birthday boy, was king on the very last, you know, bouncing of the ball. I'm like, that's great. Nobody told them to do it. They're just being good kids, learning kindness, fierce competitiveness. They were going to kill each other five minutes earlier. But it ended on a positive note that made the birthday boy feel good. Those are the kind of moments where you believe in humanity um, yes. and it makes you want to foster more of it. Absolutely. This is Thatcher was playing Foursquare. Yeah, that's my little Thatcher, my babe, who I'm trying to infantilize and not turn into a man. I I want him to stay home with mommy forever. And you know it's hard. The more the more we love somebody, uh, the more we want to enable them, or we, the more we want to do for them. But the doing for them is so often enabling them. And um, we often say moms have unconditional love, and we don't re- sometimes understand that both moms and dads have unconditional love. But dads are far more likely to have conditional approval as part mm. of the package of unconditional love. And so it's so important for us to understand that con- that concept. Well, and I know you say you need the dad around. I mean, of course, these are all you know stereotypes and it could be different. Maybe, maybe moms are more like this in some families. But exactly. I remember when my when our eldest was learning how to ride a bike and I thought he was too young to switch from his little balance bike where you just push your feet to a bike with pedals. And Doug was like, Meg, it's time. He can do it. And I was like, well, I don't I don't know. He's like, just go have lunch with Janice, have a glass of wine and you come back later. I'm like, well, put on his little knee pads. And his, I really was totally paranoid. It's not like me, but I did. And he kicked me out and I came back from lunch with my friend Jan- Janice. And I came back to this child riding a bike, no knee pads, none of the protective stuff except for the helmet, y- riding, yelling, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. The, the dad, his willingness to take risks, his, you know, just the attitude you're talking about is what led to that moment. Absolutely. And to a couple of things of your parent listening to this is that sometimes those risks will end up in exactly what the mom predicted, uh, mm-hmm. a scraped knee. Um, you know, some the child falling and, and doing, you know, and falling on his or her head or something along those lines. And if you'd like to, when, when we come back after break, um, I'd love to talk about 
the, some of the ways that manifests, like how dads doing roughhousing so often scares moms, how the how the, the what moms predict that will come out of the roughhousing, uh, that one of the children getting hurt is oftentimes more likely to be correct than not correct. Yet what the children get from the roughhousing when it's done in the way that the, the best dads do it, uh, that lead to the children who do the roughhousing actually being more empathetic than they would without the roughhousing. Right. So, you, you know, very few dads understand this and, you know, they don't go ahead and say, I want to do roughhousing with the kids to make them more empathetic. It's about the no, most no. counter thing you could imagine. But No, but I'll I do be- want to talk about that. And I want to talk about the teasing too, because I'm Linda Kelly's daughter and there's a lot to answer for. Dr. Warren Farrell, stand by, quick break. So much more, including couples, including school shootings uh, and more uh, of a deep dive on our young men. Dr. Farrell, the, the, the notion of roughhousing and teasing, right? I know it's got to have some limits about it. We're not talking about beating the hell out of somebody and we're not talking about crushing their spirit to the point where they're in tears because you've insulted them so badly. But there's a whole realm before you get into those danger zones. Yes. Uh, a very good example of that is like, um, you, let's say you have uh, two sons and a daughter um, and you know you're um, and the and the and the dad starts to say oh, okay the three of you get on the couch and the three of you jump off uh, the couch onto my back and I'll see whether I can pin the three of you down before the three of you pin me down and the kids are all excited about you know doing that and mom is going looking oftentimes and going oh my god I feel like I have just one more child to monitor here <laughs> um, you know, and she's sort of saying, you know, I, you know, I don't want to be controlling and the kids seem like they're having fun. Uh, but on the other hand, I just feel like, you know, sooner or later, somebody's going to get hurt. Um, and she's only about 99% likely to be right. Um, and the... <laughs> And so eventually, you know, they're roughhousing, the kids are loving it, and eventually somebody starts to cry. Uh, and the mom goes, oh, my God, now she feels guilty that she didn't interfere uh, because she, you know, didn't, don't, doesn't want the children to cry or get hurt. And so she, but she thinks, all right, dad will be mature enough to recognize that this ends up in kids getting hurt and he'll stop the roughhousing. But he doesn't stop the roughhousing. He goes some version of... Um, now, uh, Jimmy, you can't stick your, um, you know, your elbow and your your sister's um, eye like that. That's not a way to win roughhousing. And you can't push so hard. That's too aggressive. That you, it's fine to be assertive. You can put your eye, you know, uh, fake fake your the, your your brother or sister out. Uh, you just can't push them that hard. Uh, okay, okay, Dad, we got it, we got it. Um, and then they, they go back and the, they go back to roughhousing. And Mom is saying to herself, you know, wait a minute. He didn't learn his lesson. Now they're back to doing the same thing that led to the children getting hurt before. And then sooner or later, again, the children um, get uh, somebody does something too aggressive. And dad is more likely to say something like, okay, um, you did what you said you wouldn't do. And now the roughhousing stops. And there's no more roughhousing until maybe two days from now. And so mom feeling, mom's feeling a little bit mixed about this, you know, wait a minute, like that you stopped the roughhousing, but what are you're telling the kids you're going to do it again in a couple of days? And it's the couple of days later that the payoff comes. Um, now the kids know that if they're too aggressive or they stick their elbow in their sister or brother's eye, uh, that the roughhousing is going to stop like yeah, it out. did last time. Now they're beginning to learn postponed gratification. Immediate gratification is pushing their brother or sister out of the circle or putting the elbow in the eye. Um, Postponed gratification is saying to themselves, I want the roughhousing 
even more than I want this immediate gratification of pushing my sister or brother around. And I know I'm going to lose um, the roughhousing, what I really want, if I, if I do the pushing uh, around and I'm too aggressive. That's when the, and the, the postponed gratification is the single biggest predictor of success or failure. Um, and so in the, life, the, like as a human, in, in life as a human, academic success or failure, academic success or failure is most predicted by reading and writing skills, but life success or failure is most predicted by the ability to have postponed gratification. Obviously, it's not the only predictor, lots of other things as well, but postponed gratification is the single biggest one. And the other, the other thing that's so helpful in life is empathy. And so here's the connection between empathy and, and roughhousing, that the, the children who realize that they have no choice but to think of their sister's or brother's feelings by being pushed too hard or having an elbow in the eye, they're learning to think of their sister and brother in order to get what they want. Children don't develop empathy by choice they develop it by knowing that they get something that they want as a result mm. of being empathetic. Right. Inter interestingly, parents who are extremely empathetic, but for whom empathy is only a one-way street, that is the parents are constantly empathetic to the children, that does not lead to empathetic children. Children, only children who are only empathized with, but are not required like at family dinner nights to also hear the parents and the parents' perspective they don't learn they don't learn to be empathetic themselves they only learn to receive empathy and receiving mm. empathy as a one-way street becomes narcissism mm. and that you, explains a lot yeah, it does you know our does. society today's name i mean we talk a lot about helicopter parents who are there like i mean that's exactly the wrong thing to do on every front according to what i'm hearing you know you, you're taking away so many opportunities from your child and you're not you, you may be you may be keeping him or her safe for the time being but not for the long term and you're not developing any character yes absolutely and 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 here you know obviously safety and watching out for a child's safety is important also and and so you uh, before when we were talking i was mentioning that checks and balance parenting is is the parenting that that really is most helpful for children so for example uh, uh, the, the child may go to the mom and say, can I climb the tree in the backyard? And the mom may say, well, sweetie, you're, you're too young for that now, maybe in a few years. And then goes to the child goes to the dad and the dad says, okay, but be careful. And then the mother sees the child out there climbing the tree and says, what are you doing? I told you you couldn't climb the tree. Well, dad said, dad said I could climb the tree. And so uh, checks and balance parenting would be mom and dad getting together and saying, okay, you know, um, I don't want the child to climb the tree because the child can get hurt, fall out, get a concussion, might be the end of his or her life. And dad says, well, the child needs to learn how to take risks and um, and 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 that actually, and if he if he's you know one of the things I discuss in the boy crisis is that risk taking children uh, like the ones that climb the tree have better um, uh, uh, skills that lead to an actual increase in their IQ because their synapses are uh, firing and developing in ways that 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 were outside of their normal comfort zone and their normal pattern. So anyway, the children. So dad can maybe explain that intellectually. 
but also can explain that the, the two of them can end up working on a compromise, like, okay, the child can climb the tree, but not beyond a certain level. And to, to make sure that the father is underneath the tree so that in case the child does fall, uh, that she or he um, gets protected by the child's, uh, the father cushioning the child. And the mom might negotiate with the dad to take the cell phone away from the dad so the dad is focusing on the child and not the cell phone. <laughs> And um, and so what the two have done together is to give the child maximum protection, but at the same time, uh, give the child uh, the ability to develop the um, that constant assessment of what's safe and what's not safe with the underlying security blanket, like a roller coaster. You know, you get the excitement out of the roller coaster. You get, um, but you you know that the 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 roller coaster is going to keep you safe at the same time um, as it's going to get, uh, allow you to have a certain amount of excitement and risk taking. Mm. I mean, all these are so, they're fascinating to me. And, and it does seem to me, I mean, you tell me, but like for my friends in the same sex marriage, this seems like, I mean, I, I don't want to characterize anybody, but one, one of them is from Vermont and she's much more earthy and she's, you know, she's more like, we're not doing that. You know, like this, that makes no sense. And, and the other gal is more like, fun loving and a spender and like more like it's fine i don't know like so i feel like is it about gender roles exactly or is it about personality types that tend to be associated with one gender or the other that's a really good way of putting it it is um almost all the um couples in my couples workshops that have been gay uh, or um have been uh, have said that they do a couple of exceptions to this um, but that they do have like a male and female role within the framework of the gay couple, whether it's the male male or the female. And um, and so you you often, so, you know, where those roles develop from and why we're, you know, most, most of the time couples are attracted to mem the members of either the other sex or the same sex that are fairly different from them. Mm -hmm. um, but then they end up blaming the other sex for the differences that they were attracted to. <laughs> and so, you know, one of the little wisdoms in my couples workshop is before you blame your partner, look in the mirror, uh, yeah. see what you needed that led you to be attracted to the, the person you were attracted to, whether you're gay or straight, this seems to be a, a pattern. And the, you know, in gay couples, uh, one does tend to play more of a male role. One does tend to play more of a female role. And mm -hmm. very occasionally I find them, you know, not being able to differentiate. Uh, so yeah, uh, anyway and then okay so the, no, go, yeah go, go ahead sorry so there's two oh. other things i want to get to before we take the callers and i want to make sure, sure i get them in because i do want to spend some time on couples i think your insights are so helpful but i but i we have to talk about school shootings because i know you've written a lot about that and we've mm -hmm. covered so much about this and you know you you make some very obvious um observations but they need to be underscored and then you go much deeper school shootings are committed by boys, by young men. It's not girls who are doing this. And there's a reason for that. You know, and you point out, people tell you, those are the violent videos. And, you know, definitely guns have something to do with it. Um, but, and even absentee fathers, boys and girls grow up in that same home. A brother and a sister, they grow up in that same home without the dad, with the violent video games, with guns potentially, maybe not with a very good, healthy family dynamic. But still, it's boys who are doing the mass shootings, the school shootings. So let's get into it. Why? Why is that? Yes, um, bo the boys are usually um, a boys. B, they're usually more, much more likely than other people to be dad deprived. So uh, of the seven mass shootings in which ten or that were school shootings, uh, that in which ten or more uh, people were killed since in the twenty first century. Um, 
we we know the family backgrounds of six of those um, boys, and the family backgrounds of six the six boys that we know are pretty similar. They're they're all dad deprived boys, very minimal or no father involvement, and most of the boys also had antagonistic argument, very argumentative relationships with their mothers, mm-hmm. um, and and usually had no father and no good male role model in their life. Um, that was active and present in their life um, with consistency, but mostly it's dad deprivation in boys. Um, so you know what can so what is this about? And the boy with um, with no um, and I got a an example of this uh, was a boy from not too far from Uvalde, Texas, who had called me before the Uvalde, Texas incident and said, I really want to thank you, um, Dr. Farrell, for, you know, the Boy Crisis book. I was um, with a, a fascist group called 8chan, and um, I didn't have a, um, a father. I was raised by a mom who didn't like men. Um, and then I, I got into lots of con- conflicts with her and then was passed on to my grandmother um, on my mother's side and then aunts. Um, and we got all into big fights. And um, I had, I felt I had no purpose in life. I was addicted to video games. I saw myself as a character in a video game, not as a real human being. Um, I, um, without the purpose and structure, I got attracted to a fascist um, HN group. Um, and I started to think that, you know, having the fascist solution would be a really um, good solution and I could teach the world a lot of things. But I, underneath it all, I was super angry. And he said, what I got out of the boy crisis was not your data. But rather that that my my attitudes, my internal thinking was seen exactly. I felt like somebody finally understood me. And when I finished that, I ended up not having the anger that I felt before. I still had anger. I still hated my mom, but it was not enough anger to uh, execute on a 52-page manifesto that I had written that was what all the exact plans I was going to do to create this mass shooting. So thanks for saving my life and thanks for saving the life of many other people. And um, to this, um, and so my next job with that young young man was to communicate with him on Zoom and to try to get him to to see that his mother loved him, probably not hated him. And um, fortunately that has worked and he's now sees his mother as having let him do the video games because that was the one thing that his mother felt that he was, uh, that satisfied him and made him happy and she wanted to make him happy. Um, and so, but the, it's, it's just an example of the, the, what happens in so many young men's lives who don't feel they have the structure, the purpose and the role model. When uh, uh, when a, a girl is raised by a single mom, uh, she usually, she at least has a female role model that she can sort of model herself afterwards. And girls have much more permission in society to be able to express their feelings and fears and moms can often identify with those feelings and fears. So at least while the girl is um, significantly um, oftentimes hurt by not having a, a significant father involvement, um, nevertheless, um, the amount of, of damage is much more frequently um, um, befalls the boy without a, without a same-sex role model. Mm, my gosh, that is just terrifying. I mean, what you just described describes the Uvalde shooter. It describes the Newtown shooter. I mean, you can just think of the ones off the top of your head where in both of those cases, the mothers allowed the boys to spend countless hours um, behind closed doors in the basement, watching violent videos, 
the mother in the Uvalde case was absentee and reportedly had many other issues, including, you know, many interactions with the police and so on. And the dad wasn't there either. In either case, there was a divorce in the Sandy Hook. I don't, but I think he lived in a different place. Yes, and uh, in Uvalde, the kid was living with a grandfather. You know, Adam Lanza, of course, had that very similar background of, of lack of father involvement as well. And mm-hmm. so, so the so the importance of us bringing our dads. Now, this I want to be really clear. This is this does not mean that if you have a child growing up without a dad, he's going to become a mass shooter or he's going to commit suicide. Um, you know, many many children raised by single mothers who are probably the hardest among the hardest working people in the country. Um, do just fine. Um, but among the ones that are having problems, these uh, what we call failures to launch, the ones that we know are bright but are not living up to their their the intelligence we sense in them, uh, those are the ones that so frequently do not have that that um, that in, that, you know, that you take that risk, that teasing um, that that t- helps children be able to be, criticized without and recognizing that they can laugh at themselves and have the humiliation, the, the self, um, uh, the, the, uh, the ability to, to laugh at themselves and that, that capacity. There's so many things that both parents bring to parenting that children um, really seem to need, both girls and boys. And girls have a similar set of problems, but there are also some different ones. So for example, children uh, who are girls who are not raised with minimal or no father involvement are far more likely to become pregnant out of wedlock as teenagers. And one of the reasons is that they don't know how to roughhouse with their dad. They don't know how to talk with their dad. They don't have lots of social skills of of knowing how to deal with the male and male energy and male humor and male teasing uh, that that girls who grow up with those types of of social skills learn. And therefore, uh, when they're with a boy, one of two things tends to happen they tend to feel like the only way I can please this boy and not lose him to another a girl is by being sexual with him. Um, and so she becomes sexual with him before she's comfortable being sexual with him uh, because she feels that's the way she can keep him. Or conversely, she's so fearful about relationships to begin with, she's afraid of becoming intimate with boys at all. And so one of those two extremes um, is more likely to happen with girls um, being raised um, with a minimal or no father involvement. Mm. So what you're telling me is that because I lost my dad to a heart attack when I was 15, he was 45. When Linda, my mom thereafter, continued to mock my feet, which are very unattractive, and to tell me that I was going to be with her for a long time because I, too, was rather unattractive. She was shoring me up. She was shoring me up for life. That's <laughs> yes, amazing. It's like Eleanor Roosevelt's um, stepmother, you know, FDR's father. And it was um you know, was was constantly commenting that you know FDR should find somebody other than Eleanor because she wasn't good looking enough for the you know for the society and the, and Eleanor's <laughs> own father uh, own mother uh, was critical of her looks and it's such a sad thing when we put so much emphasis especially on female looks. Yeah, well, I mean, let me tell you, she wasn't wrong. If you could see pictures of me as a little girl, it, there was no promise there. I mean, they, they were just setting me up for the future, but. You know, a little hair dye and I got my teeth fixed and, you know, you lost some weight and your bone structure comes out. There's hope for everyone. Um, (laughs) Let's talk about couples and attraction, because this is one of the things I find very interesting. You have a thing in one of your books. I'm trying to remember which one it was, but it's about how a man needs one thing in order to want to sleep with a woman (laughs) to find her attractive. He needs her to be sexually attractive to him. And a woman needs a list that is as long as Santa's scroll. (laughs) in general. 
before she and like what's on her list and why are we so different when it comes to what makes us actually want to couple with the other sex? Yeah. Yeah, for I, I guess reasons of uh, evolution, you know, men, um, the male need was a sexually attractive and younger female, uh, which was, um, and the sexually attractive historically meant um, that they were genetically more healthy. They had, you know, cheekbones that were, you know, similar and high and, and other characteristics that that were signatures of greater health and youth, of course, because they had, you know, the, they were at the right age to be able to, to, to bear children. And so we've been genetically programmed to fall, you know, to have sex, to desire to have sex with a woman who is just plain beautiful and young. Um, and the, and women um, historically um, desired to have sex with men who were, well, they were able to provide income or some economic securities or some ability to protect and provide. Um, but the men who are, you know, the, the qualities it takes to be successful at work are often in enormous tension with the qualities it takes to be successful in love. Uh, to be successful in work, uh, you learn to listen as somebody else is talking and provide solutions inside of your mind as somebody else is talking. If you're a lawyer, you've, you, you learn to find the criticism, the fault in what somebody else is saying, and you're rehearsing your response to that fault uh, while the other person is talking. Well, that may be great in a law court, but if you mm. come home and you do that with your husband or your wife or your children, uh, your children don't feel heard, the, your husband or wife doesn't feel heard. So the qualities it took to become successful at work um, become um, oftentimes unsuccessful in love. And the challenge with all that is that, that, that therefore the list that women have to gather in order to be not just protected, but to be with a man who's emotionally intelligent despite being successful, I say despite being successful, because those two are often in tension, um, means that she has to check not just for the success, but is there respect for her beyond the, um, as part of the emotional intelligence, is respect for her manifested by listening, not solving problems. Almost every CEO I've ever dealt with has been so good at solving their wife's problems. Um, and it's almost always the husband CEO and, and the wife, but when it's reversed, the same type of thing with the female CEO is often that she's very good at solving her husband's problems, but uh, the woman whose problems are solved in a few seconds while she hasn't been able to solve those problems um, in all her lifetime up to that point, uh, does not feel more respected by those problems being solved and does not feel heard. And so there's so And much, she doesn't so the, feel they're solved. And she doesn't feel they're solved. And the best way I can communicate with that male CEO is to say, listening is the solution. Like you don't have to solve the problem. You have solved the problem by listening. And when yeah. she asks you for your input, yes, eventually give your input. But before you give your input, say, you know, if, if you were the person that you're dealing with, what would you say? Role, role play the person she's having the conflict with. Have her role play it. When most For most people, the answer is within them. And when you draw them out to discover the answer that's within them, they feel so much more empowered and so much more loved by you and so much more listened to by you. And that's the solution. Or that's so a little good. tip of the iceberg of the solution. Is that also true with children, right? It's like the role is not the same if you're the parent listening to your child, especially the younger children, you know, they're not, they're not 25, you know, they're minors. 
Is it the same role to listen or in that situation, should you be more aggressive about offering proposals? It's um, yes. First, listen, see what the children can discover inside of themselves, but then don't hesitate to also share the gap between what the children do come up with and what you feel is helpful for the children to learn. Okay, that's good to know. And you also talk about the importance of that family dinner table, about how that should be treated as sacred that time. But it's not just getting the fam together. That's that counts. But it's also about how the conversation goes, what's on the table, what's not, and how you behave in response to what you're hearing and also what what you choose to say and share. Can you talk about that for a minute? Family dinner nights are so important, um, but sometimes family dinner nights devolve into family dinner nightmares. Um, And soon children don't want to become part of the family dinner night because they don't feel heard. That's usually the key reason. But the other another reason is that they bring electronics to the table and many parents are not good boundary enforcers and saying, you know, family dinner night, we do it once a week. It is the highest priority. If there's really something, a major emergency that comes up, we reschedule it. We don't cancel it. Um, when we when we do family dinner night, there's no electronics at the table. You have any problem with that? And you bring electronics to the table. The, the, those electronic devices will be taken from you for the rest of the evening and given to you the following morning. Um, the you make some small consequence, but that is that is a meaningful consequence. You you know that the you make it clear that the parents are in charge, not the children being in charge of the parents. Very important distinction for many families these days. Um, and then when you do the family dinner night, you vary topics and you let each um, person who's you know maybe nine, 10 years of age or older in the family to choose a topic of conversation. And then those the, that topic of conversation gets um, shared, the perspectives on that get shared by anybody, uh, go, um, each person at the table, you go around the table and the requirement is that before you go on to the next person, um, the somebody at that table shares what she or he heard and the, and the family together at that table works to make sure that the person who is speaking feels completely heard, that is not distorted, that nothing is missing, and there's nothing that they feel that they absolutely must add in order to have the, the whole issue understood. When that, when those things are, when the person who's talking said, yeah, nothing was distorted, nothing was missed, and that the essence of what I need to say is understood, then you move on to the second person. Well, this may take two family dinner nights to, con- to, to complete this whole round, but in the end, everyone feels understood by their brothers and their sisters and then by their parents. And, mo- and just as importantly, oftentimes many parents are, who care about family dinner nights and are good couples are, as I was hinting before, they're better at providing empathy and understanding to the children then the children are providing empathy for the parents' perspective and their brothers and sisters' perspective. But it's also a requirement if you want your children to be empathetic, that the children be required to um, also share what their parents said without any distortion and without anything being missed and what their brothers and sisters said in the same way. And when ch- uh, and, and that also there's no fear of bringing up extremely controversial topics. Um, boys especially love controversial topics, but both boys and girls and parents have in common that they'd all like to be heard. And if you see your children talking for an hour and a half on their phone phone with a peer, um, but when you ask them what's going on and they say, oh, nothing much, uh, or give you some brief answer, you know there's 
that the reason is that the children aren't feeling as heard by the family members as they are with um, their peer, and that they're feeling that, that interruptions come more than compassion and understanding. Mm. So yeah, they've got to listen to you uh, speak. That's just as important as you listening to them speak. And can I just ask you, so when you say any topic and, you know, do you really feel heard? If there's a family conflict, that makes sense. But mm -hmm. are you just saying like we could say we could talk about climate change, we could talk about abortion, we could talk, talk about Trump, like anything? Yes, exactly. And if, if you know, if two people at the table are Trump supporters and two people at the table feel Trump is the biggest evil or that, you know, that Putin is, a, you know, do, doing what is really helpful, could it be helpful for the Ukraine? And, um, you know, and somebody else feels that that's just, you know, one more attack on the Ukraine here. This is good. This is good. Um, this is good fodder for hearing about perspectives that you couldn't even imagine you would want to hear. Mm. Um, and 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 the person who's able to do it, the children that are able to do that have only one problem. They get too many friends. Because I'm being, well, I like what you, you wrote in one of your books that, that even if your child doesn't understand it, most children would much rather be a little confused than bored at the dinner table. That's absolutely. such a good observation. And, and that's especially true of boys. They, they want to constantly be challenged. And, and it is true that they won't any more than the, the girls at the table understand everything, but they'd rather reach for, reach for it and miss some things. And then round two, it's just like when we first hear new, you know, when we first hear English or any language, we don't understand 99% of what's being said, but our brains teach us to grasp that this, this means that. And not only does this mean that, this word mean that, but this word with this body language, with this tone of voice um, means something different than that mm. same word, with different body language and different tone of voice. That which is, is so Which true. is one of the reasons that, um, that real human contact is so important because the subtleties of body language, of, of eyes dilating, of slight withdrawal, of, of, of tones of voice, are not yet captured well enough by AI uh, to be able to um, teach children emotional intelligence. Oh, it's one of the reasons they need to stay unmasked. Okay, that's my own editorial. Dr. Warren Farrell, staying with us. I definitely want to ask you about conflict resolution in a marriage because the good doctor has a very interesting approach to this. On a weekly basis, how many hours should be devoted to conflict-free zones and how many should be devoted to actually speaking and saying the things that you haven't been saying. All right, so Dr. Farrell, you, out of your book, The Boy Crisis, came an idea to help couples. And now you host couples communication retreats called Rollmate to Soulmate. Now, I understand that one of the most important things is learning how to hear your partner's criticisms without becoming defensive. This is, of course, easier said than done, but you have an approach which includes creating a, quote, conflict-free zone and explain how this works on an hourly basis because you've got it down to a series of hours, basically. Yes, I, I have couples create a conflict-free zone for 166 hours a week in exchange for a two-hour caring and sharing, what I call a caring and sharing time um, for the, uh, the, the other two hours of the week. And so the caring and sharing time is the real backbone. Uh, what I found is that when you talk to couples about the value of listening to each other, um, they all go out of the workshop and feel, oh, now I know more about how important listening is. 
but that the listening disappear disappears the moment a criticism appears. So um, because we are biologically programmed to respond to criticism uh, defensively because it was potentially an enemy. So we got up our defenses and we survived by you know defeating the enemy uh, or getting up being defensive when we were criticized. However, as I was mentioning before, that's you know great for survival, but it's terrible for love. And so because we are so biologically programmed to become defensive to criticism, um, I, I had before a couple does any criticism of their partner, what I ask for them to do is to uh, write that criticism down, the criticism that survives as being valuable and important to be shared at the end of the week, um, gets shared just one criticism per week um, by um, the, par the partner who's upset about that, that issue. And But before they share that criticism, um, I ask them to go into six mindsets, that is to alter their natural biological state of being defensive and to ins and substitute that with a temporary state of, of those mindsets saying that something like what I call the love guarantee is one of the mindsets, which is you know, that if the more I listen, provide a safe environment for my partner's feelings, the more my partner will feel safe and loved by me. Therefore, the more um, my partner will feel loved by me um, as, as, and love, I'm sorry, and love for me as well. And so the and so after they go through six mindsets like that and say those mindsets out loud, so their partner can see that they're that they are making themselves safe and receptive, uh, they then say uh, that they're ready to hear their partner's um, criticism, uh, and then the partner gets a chance to share his or her criticism in whatever way she or he wants to share. That may be an exaggerated version of the of the story, a totally different story than the person um, who is hearing it heard. Um, but normally speaking, our minds are uh, while their our partner is telling a different version of the world that we thought was accurate. We are forming in our own. We're doing self something that I call self listening. We're listening to ourselves respond and prepare that response like a lawyer would uh, to our partner's um, to our partner's story. And as a result is that even though the partner may not be interrupted, best case scenario, nevertheless, they sense that we're we're somewhere else in preparing our own version and we don't feel heard. Mm -hmm. And so when somebody gets to the point where they're doing what's quite natural, they're beginning to feel, uh, talk about talk about their own perspective in their mind's eye. Um, I ask them to say hold and to, to keep that hold um, sacred that is i don't want to be listening to myself while you're talking i need to be i need to center myself and go back to really hearing your story from your perspective with no argument inside of my mind um, to that perspective um, and when that type of pure listening is being done and the person who is listening is saying hold i want uh it's your your story is sacred you're the person i love more than anybody in the world i would die risk dying for you um to give you life so now i really want to give you life um by listening to you and having you it's feel a heard. mindset yeah it's a mindset i mean i i've talked about this before but i have to tell you my, my husband and i were very good at this and um this is a tip i i shared you know with my audience before which is generally when when doug comes to me with a complaint about something you know he feels i've done or something i've said then when i go to him the other person on the receiving end of the criticism 
just naturally switches into a mode of what did I do? Because this is my sweetheart who I love. And it's not like they're peppering me with complaints all the time. Mm -hmm. This is a reasonable person who loves me. And mm -hmm. so I probably did something <laughs> like what yeah. I probably did something to put this person in this mode of being like, I don't like it. And we're mm -hmm. really quick to sort of make the case for them. You know, like I felt alone and like you didn't want to be with me when you did the following, you know, for four days in a row and it mm -hmm. made me mad at you. And instead mm -hmm. of, you know, one of us, i.e. Doug, switching into mode of like, no, I didn't do it. It's, it was all in your head. You know, he would say like, you're right. I was too absentee. I was focused on this other thing. And I'm sorry I made you feel that I should have stopped to think about your feelings. And then yeah. usually I would switch into a mode of, well, I've just been feeling insecure lately. You know, it's not all it's like if you can be like aggressively taking responsibility, you know, instead of aggressively defensive, because there's always, always, almost always something you did and he did, you know, it's, not, it's never usually on the one party. And even if it's yeah. just all that you did was you've got a lifelong insecurity on this issue. So you're easily, you know, your buttons are pressed. It can work out so much better if you're just super giving to your partner in those moments. All right, wait, I want to get to my callers enough from blathering from me. So many people are calling in, Doc. They want to they want to talk to you. Uh, let's start it off with Diane in Colorado, who's got a question for you. Hi, Diane. What's your question for the good doctor? Hi, doctor. It's so insightful listening to you. And I just have a question about my son. He's 17. Great kid. Responsible. He's in sports. He's a great student. But I don't feel like we have a great relationship. We don't really talk about much. He's not chatty. How do I how do I develop a deeper relationship with him without him just being annoyed that I pepper him with questions all the time? Do you have a family dinner night that you do at all? We do, we do. But you know, I find that it's it's mostly my husband and I talking, and they kind of you know couple um, one word answers. And and I heard what you said about everybody bringing a topic, and I think that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. um, um, and a lot of this I know is just a normal teenager thing, but how how can we be better as parents and draw that out of them without just being annoying parents? Mm -hmm. Yes, it is really helpful to, uh, first of all, you can start with them and their pr perspectives and sharing, or you can start with yourselves, uh, you, you and your husband, you know, sh sharing about what you feel and then requiring them to say what they felt they heard from you. And once they feel, once, once, the, the, once it's established that they will be completely heard um, first um, and then and not interrupted and not, be, um, not have a judgment um, being formed on the parent's part when they're talking, then they begin to, tr if, they, if over a period of time they can trust that, that that will happen more and more frequently, or that you see, do you have any other children besides your son? We do. We have another son that's also, he's a 15. 15. Well, that's a, that's a good age to also, uh, is he more uh, open um, in, in general or is uh, less open? Um, nope. He's a little more open, a little more chatty than, than the older one. Um, but yeah, the other, the older one is just, pretty shut off, doesn't really tell us much, doesn't really share much. And, um, but, but I hear exactly what you're saying. Yes. Now, usually the child that doesn't speak up much, and yet, especially if you see him like talking to his friends more freely and more easily, 
uh, feels that the result of him speaking up will be that he will run into some area which will um, incur your judgment, your restriction, your wrath, um, you know, and therefore why talk to begin with? Um, it's only going to get me into trouble or it's only going to restrict me in some way or the other um, and uh, or lead to a restriction. Um, and so the if the talking is if 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 the if the more talkative child if you start with that child and then if you if that if you model having that child really feel heard or your your husband feeling heard by you when when he's talking um after a while that will probably take however let me know if it doesn't um uh, my email is warren at warrenferrell.com or just look up oh, warren boy. ferrell and um and, and you'll you'll see my email on my website and look at him um, go that's, that's very that. nice. Diane, you got a direct line now to Warren Farrell. That's pretty good. Thank you for that call and the inquiry and good luck with it. Um, on on the subject of the dinner table, this is a good one. Brian from California has got a follow-up for you, Dr. Farrell. Brian, what's your question? Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, so I, I've, just, I've tuned in and we've been talking about, you know, having these conversations around the dinner table with your children. And I'm, I have uh, teenagers, uh, 17 and and 15 and you know i live in an area that you know uh, of a part of the country that's expensive to live and unfortunately my wife and i don't have the luxury of being home every night at a specific time to have dinner at the dinner table so my question is you know what what can be done to make up for the lack of the weekly dinners at the dinner table and and you know conflict resolution all these things going on in the world uh you know there's a little bit of guilt that's set in for me as well not being there for my kids every night for dinner but you know, what, what, what can be done as an alternative to make sure that we bring the family dynamics together still? Yes, there, there, there is no substitute of dime for time. That is, a father's time is far more valuable than a father's dime. And so if you, um, once a family in the United States gets to be t between uh, 50 and $80,000 worth of income per year, um, the then the children who do the best, who don't go to psychologists and say, uh, you know, my father didn't, you know, provide enough income for us to live in the top-notch area in the country. Uh, you don't hear children reporting that type of message to psychologists. It's usually, uh, my father didn't pay attention to me. My father didn't have enough time for me. My mother didn't have enough time, or, or so on. So it really does require if you not do it, if you don't have time to do a family dinner night, one night a week then I really would ask you in a really loving way to, to reconsider where you're living um, because, um, you know, working harder to have a better home in a, even a better school district doesn't have as much impact studies show as having time with the children. And at least that one night a week uh, where you have the uh, family dinner night is really um, very helpful, but also times playing with your children. One of the ways that children do so much, uh, one of the reasons children do so well with their dads when they have a dad, lot of dad involvement is not just because of the existence of dad as a breadwinner, but the existence of the dad as a playmate, as a roughhouser, as a somebody they go camping with, as somebody that lets them go to the lake um, and maybe get lost um, because, and, and then let the child find his or her way back, but knowing that the dad is there um, to rescue them if it really needs to be, if it really comes down to that, if night is falling on them and the yeah. child is going to be lost, lost, so to speak. Uh, so that's, that's um, good. I, can I just add, Brian, Brian, that my own therapist told me this when I was a very busy working mom that wasn't home for any dinners when I was doing the primetime show. And he said, um, 
one-on-one time, like once, once a week, make sure you do one thing with one child. Like it could be just, you're going to go out to lunch with that kid, or you're going to take him to the park, or you're going to go see a ball game. Like just some one-on-one time matters. Um, yes. Thank you for your call and good luck with your with your kids. Brian, appreciate you listening. Let's jump to uh, Kim in North Carolina, who's got a good question. Hi, Kim. What's your question for Dr. Farrell? Uh, my grandson just started second grade yesterday and is so excited to have his first male teacher. Are there any studies or encouragements for men to get into more of the elementary education? Oh, Kim, you are asking such an important question. Um, it is so important, especially for children. Um, Kim, are you a single mother or are you um, with, with the biological dad? Uh, She's the grandma. I'm sorry. Oh, oh, you're the grandma. I'm, I'm sorry. The grandma. Yes. Okay. yes. Uh, so the, the uh, children, um, particularly children, if they don't, uh, boys, if they don't have a biological dad at home and they go from a, a home without a biological dad to, to a school, um, elementary school with no male role models, uh, that's when children, boys tend to have considerable problems. Um, but so if, if that's the case, uh, one of the things we really need to be doing overall as a culture is really encouraging elementary schools to have um, male um, elementary school teachers and not just males like me. I'm a sort of nurturer, connector type of male, but also traditional males. So your son uh, or your grandson in your case um, has role models of different types of males, not just a type of male. So uh, we we really need to be encouraging um, our uh, ways of getting our schools encouraged to bring um, males into the elementary school system. And we have a lot of challenges with that. Uh, oftentimes a boy in second grade, if he's crying, let's say, and he sits on his, uh, a male teacher's lap and the male teacher holds him, uh, it just takes one parent uh, looking at a, a picture from a cell phone of the, of the child's, the boy sitting on a, on the, a male teacher's lap uh, to suggest that maybe there's some um, perversion here. And so many, um, when a study was done in Canada of males about whether they wanted to be elementary school teachers, a very high percentage of males said they would love to be elementary school teachers, but more than 75% of them said they were fearful of being accused of some type of um, perversion if they got too close to the children. Um, and so we really have to deal wow. with that type of um, fear and over concern and lack of um, lack of understanding how important it is uh, for children to have uh, male role models. Male and role models. So, so Dr. Putting- Farrell, I'm going to jump in just for a second because we, we got one minute till we got to go. And Kim, thank you for the call. But I can see there are a few callers on here and my love and heart goes out to them about their children who lost their dads their children who lost their dads and are feeling unmotivated or are feeling deeply sad or are retreating into video games. I apologize for squeezing this into 60 seconds, but a couple of lines for those parents struggling with that. Yes, work on getting male coaches, Working on, work on bringing the best males you know over. Um, work on, if you get involved with a, a new man um, as a stepfather, make sure that the stepfather is not limited to just the advisor role make sure that you allow the stepfather to really be an, have an equal amount of influence on your parenting. Get out of your comfort zone um, and, and, and negotiate to the checks and balance parenting as if the stepfather were the biological father, if the biological father cannot be involved. 
and always make an attempt to get the biological father involved if that's possible. And I will say this, having lost my own dad when I was 15, um, there's recovery. It's awful and it's painful, but there's recovery. And there is some, there's some life lessons that come with it that will help make your kids stronger if they have a loving, present mother there helping to get them through it. Dr. Warren Farrell, so much love to you. Thank you so much for for all of your expertise and all of your books, for sharing your personal email. (laughs) And please come back, would you? I would be very happy to. It's just a pleasure. I love that you go in depth. I love that you share your own stories. And I'm in awe of how you go from um, uh, the interview to a commercial right after that. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's an acquired skill. Lots of love, sir. Well, to be continued. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear.